Well, we are continuing our series called This is Love, and we've transitioned into seeing the world through the eyes of love. So it's very important for us to see the world in the right way. So we've gone to focusing on Romans 12, 2 and Matthew 6, 22 and 23 in order to uh, look at the world in the right way. So let me just read Romans 12, 2 and Matthew 6. So Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So we don't want to conform to the pattern of this world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means that our mentality changes. Our mind is renewed and we start to understand the world in godly ways from God's perspective, rather than from a sin nature perspective or a worldly perspective. And then Matthew chapter six, 22 and 23 says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So Jesus here is talking about how we see the world. When we see the world in the right way, it brings light within us. But if we see the world in the wrong way, then it's going to cause all kinds of problems and great darkness within us. So we want to see the world through the lens of love. This week, we're going to look at obedience to God through the lens of love, understanding what it means to be obedient to God through the lens of love. What does it mean to be obedient to God? When I talk about obeying the commands of God, submission to the will of God, things along those lines. Does something happen in your heart? Is there a reaction that occurs? You know, the first thing I do want to say is that through this whole COVID-19 deal, I am amazed at the maturity of the body of Christ, that believers are sticking together, they're hanging with the churches that they belong to and churches are thriving as the reopening process is going. It's all going amazingly well. So I am very impressed with the spiritual maturity of the body of Christ. And so I want to give honor where honor is due and say thank you to each one that's been serving the Lord through this time. And let's look at obedience to God through 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and he says, hey, we've told you how to live in order to please God and you're doing it. Let's do it more and more. Let's keep at that. Let's make more progress. This, of course, indicates that they were having success in following the ways of God. But there's always more to learn. There's always a more complete way to see and understand how we live to please God. So they were successful. And Paul said, hey, do so more and more. And that's how we want to look at obedience to Christ. Obedience to the word of God is, hey, We're doing great. You're doing it. Let's do so more and more. 
So I do think that the idea of obedience to God and submission to authority, those sorts of things have fallen out of fashion in today's world. And even in the church, I would say there are more people that believe in God than there are people that believe in obeying God. But that doesn't make any sense because those are one and the same thing. Believing in God is believing in obeying God. It's believing in submitting to God, trusting God, giving ourselves over to God because we see him as the one who helps us. Now, one of the things I, I, we just prayed in our one minute blessing about Cornerstone Church up in Saginaw that got started this May. And I'm just so excited about that. I didn't know anything about it. It's just awesome. And one of the things that I've noticed in the Christian world is they'll read scriptures like the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And of course, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. That means that this world needs Jesus and there aren't very many people bringing Jesus to this world. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. And then the problem is, is that church leaders, when somebody else wants to plant a church nearby their church, they get all defensive. And no, scripturally, we need to rejoice when new people plant churches. We need 10 more churches in Cloquet. We need all kinds of lay ministries going, just flourishing, doing amazing things. We need all kinds of stuff to happen. So let's actually look at the scriptures and obey the scriptures. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers rather than, you know, territorially trying to keep certain areas for ourselves or just weird stuff like that. No, we celebrate when other churches are planted. It's very, very important that we look at the scriptures. We understand obedience to the ways of God, the commands of God in the scriptures through the eyes of love. So why is it that some people have trouble obeying the scriptures, obeying the things of God? Why is that? Well, I do think the major reason is that they don't understand the love of God. I think that's the main reason why people aren't excited to try to obey God is they don't understand the love of God. Your gut reaction to being told you need to submit to the scriptures, submit to the rules that God has, will tell you a lot about how you perceive God, how you see God. You know, the reality is that if God loves you and he's trying to help you and he knows everything and he can solve every problem and he's willing to grow you up and guide you through this life, why wouldn't you jump on that? I mean, talk about having the absolute best guide to life that's possible. You know, people pay all kinds of money for consultants and advisors and all this stuff. And yet we've got the Lord Almighty that will guide us through this life and empower us. Why wouldn't we jump on that? That seems like such an obvious thing to do. You know, Christians have read Matthew 7 24 through 27, this is the, uh, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, one of my very favorite sections of scripture, where Jesus is talking about building a house on a firm foundation. And this is what Jesus says at the end of chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So why would someone read that in Matthew 7 and know that if we obey God, we will last through the storms, and if we don't, our house will crash, and then still not follow the teachings of the scripture, not be obedient to God? Why would somebody do that? But I think it has to do with not understanding the love of God, seeing the expectations of God through the wrong lens. So we're going to look at three wrong lenses with regards to obedience to God. And then I'll reiterate looking at obedience to God through the lens of love. Now, there's so many things to talk about with regards to this topic. So we're going to just kind of scratch the surface a little bit. I hope you notice a whole bunch of things that I don't say because there's a whole lot. I think a whole book could be written. We could do a whole series just on this particular topic. But let's talk about the wrong lenses that people see obedience to God through. The first one is the oppressive dictator lens. If you see God as an oppressive dictator, as an angry old man who's out to hurt you, doesn't care about you, then it's going to be bad because you're going to be afraid of God. This is the sort of thing that leads to people running away from God, people rebelling against God. When you see God as an oppressive dictator, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. Now, how did that happen? Well, there's some scary stuff in the Bible. If you've read this, you know the wages of sin is death, that heaven and hell are real, that there are people who are brought into the goodness of God for everlasting life, but then there is eternal destruction as well. So there's some scary stuff with this. And if we're focused on hell and destruction and the anger and wrath of God, then Well, that just might lead you into seeing God as an oppressive dictator, an angry old man who wants to hurt you. But let me tell you what else is true. What else is true is that the cross of Christ is also real. That Jesus did come to this world to be a sacrifice, to redeem those who have sinned so that we can be completely forgiven and brought into the family of God and receive everlasting life in the kingdom of God. So yes, there's some scary stuff. The wages of sin is death, which Jesus paid on the cross and heaven and hell are real, but also the cross of Christ is real. So if you see the cross, the love of God for us, you'll run to God. But if you see condemnation and hellfire and these sorts of things, then that can cause you to be afraid and run away from God. Let me tell you, the only thing you have to fear is running away from God. Run to God. So let's get a picture of how this works. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord in the scriptures is viewed in a positive way in many cases. Some situations like the talents, the parable of the talents, the one who buries his talent is afraid of his master. So he runs away from his responsibility to put his talent to work. That type of fear of God is paralyzing. And that's the type of fear that we want to avoid. But this 
fear of God talked about in Proverbs 1 and Psalms 110 and other places in the scriptures is there to motivate us to run to God, to be obedient to God. But it's also the beginning. It's just the start. First John chapter four, uh, let's read verses 16 through 19. First John four, starting in verse 16 says this, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, but perfect love casts out fear here in the NIV. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Now, of course we fear the principal as little kids because fear has to do with punishment. You don't want to get in trouble. And of course, we don't want to get in trouble with God, but if all we see is this fear of punishment, we don't see the love of God for us. Like we saw in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If we don't see that, we might run away from God, rebel against God because we see God as an angry, oppressive dictator. But instead, we need to see the love of God so that we can run to God and be made complete in love, not afraid anymore but secure in our salvation. So verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now that word perfect that's in there twice in verse 18 is again, it's, it's translated sometimes in the King James as the word man. It means to be fully grown and complete to be mature. So this isn't talking about, you know, legalistic perfection. This is talking about completeness, the finish of the developmental process. So the beginning of the process, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the beginning of knowledge, but this is made complete. It's made mature. It's made perfect in that sense by understanding the love of God and the freedom we have in the forgiveness that Christ offers in the cross to not be judged according to our sins, but be brought into the grace of God so that we can learn the ways of God and have fellowship with God, living in this world, walking with God and trusting in everlasting life in the world to come. That's pretty good. Not oppressive dictator. So we don't want to see God as an oppressive dictator. Rather, we want to turn to God, trusting in the love of God, seeing that God loves those who are far away from him who have been caught up in the evil and darkness of this world. And he wants to set them free. He wants to bring them to forgiveness. He wants to bring them into new life. He wants them to know their value and their worth. And so that's why Jesus came to die on the cross, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So understand God is not an oppressive dictator. If you want to come to church, you will not burst into flames. So many people have said, oh, I'd come, but I think I'd probably burst into flames if I walked into that church. No, you're going to be just fine. 
Because the forgiveness that God offers, the love of God is profound and wonderful. So trust in that. So we don't want to see God from the oppressive dictator lens. We also don't want to see God from the arbitrary religious lens. Arbitrary religious lens. Arbitrary means it just doesn't mean anything. It's whatever it is, it's just arbitrary. So some people see Christianity as boring and irrelevant, full of unnecessary hassles and rules and meaningless rituals. You know, as that thought process continues to go. And besides, you know, if we ignore the teachings, we just get forgiven anyway. So what difference does it make? Why bother? That's the arbitrary religious lens of looking at God, at looking at Christianity. Now, I'm going to define faith. This is one definition. It's a definition that, that I like. Obeying God when you don't understand what's going on is faith. When we read something, a command in the scriptures, and we don't get it like love your enemies that we talked about recently, and we're like, what? Love your enemies? That doesn't make any sense. But we do it anyway. We obey when we don't understand. That's faith. But there's a problem with not understanding and obeying, and that is that sometimes we can miss the point and get off. You know, get off of the truth. Since we don't understand, we don't really get it. We're trying to obey something, but then we can kind of miss the point and get off. For example, when I was a new believer, you know, I didn't have a a real context for understanding how to interpret the Bible. And I took everything extremely literally, extremely straightforward. Now, I believe the Bible is literally true and is very straightforward, but sometimes you can steer the car too far. You know what I mean? If the command is turn right and you just go careening off to the right, the wheel as far as you can turn the gas all the way down, you're going to end up in the wrong spot. That's not always the right way to look at it. And I took verses like Matthew 16, 24 through 26, too far. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, are those verses true? Absolutely. But I took it to the extreme which I would describe as the misery gospel. You know, hey, give up my life? Absolutely. I'll I'll just give everything up. I'll just not even bother with this life. This life is a waste of time. This world's going to burn anyway. It's who cares? And I didn't engage. I disengaged from this life. And that was just the wrong way to think. I was all caught up in You know, well, if you're going to serve God, if I'm going to be a pastor, well, then I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be poor. It's not, you know, I'm not going to have anything. And I'm just, I'm giving up my life. Well, you need to be willing to do that, but don't make that happen when it doesn't have to. You need to be willing to be obedient to God in the midst of hardship and difficulty and accept poverty if it's necessary. But if it isn't necessary, don't go there. I was kind of making it happen and I didn't need to. So I took that too far. I took giving up my life too far. Now I've understand there can be a ministry uh, life balance. I can have relationships with my family. I mean, I skipped birthdays for church stuff. I skipped, didn't matter what it was. I skipped it for church stuff. That's not what Jesus was getting at that you ignore your kids' birthdays. That's not what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 16. What we can do is we can engage in this life, but we always put God first. 
We trust in him and try to see it the right way. So we don't want to get to the arbitrary religious lens where we're following scriptures, but we don't really understand them. So we take them too far. First uh, Thessalonians 517 is a fun one, you know, pray continually. And I have not yet heard anybody interpret that verse other than as you're supposed to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I just think that's ridiculous. Now that I've learned some of these things, I think, what does pray continually mean? King James pray without ceasing. What does it mean? Well, what it means is have a prayer life, have a vibrant prayer life and don't lose your prayer life. It doesn't mean that you need to be praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just taking it too far off to this side. Now, should you be aware of God, the presence of God all the time? Sure. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about having a vibrant prayer life and not losing your prayer life. Have you ever had periods of time where you had a vibrant prayer life? You prayed every day and it was one of the most important parts of your day. And then times where it's been three months and I haven't prayed and don't feel like praying. What pray continually, pray without ceasing is, is cultivate a prayer life and don't lose it. Not 24-7. That's an arbitrary, weird, religious idea. But again, I've only heard people teach that. But I'm convinced that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 really just means have a vibrant prayer life and don't lose your prayer life. So when this arbitrary religious lens goes too far, it can lead to legalism It can lead to shame, doctrinal pride. There's all kinds of things that the arbitrary religious lens can bring us into that are bad things. But rather than the arbitrary religious lens, the lens of love sees obedience to the truths of God as the way to wisdom, the way to victory, and the way to purpose in this life. That's how we should see obedience to the scriptures. This is coherent important stuff, not arbitrary, not unnecessary hassles and meaningless rituals, not boring and irrelevant, but wisdom, victory, purpose. And when we look at it that way, we can grab hold of something good because God loves us. Why does he make rules? Because he loves us and he's trying to help us out. Not arbitrary religious stuff, but coherent, meaningful truths to help us. That's the arbitrary religious lens. The third lens, wrong lens that I want to look at. And of course, there's so many different lenses that people can see God the wrong way through. But the last one is the unreasonable lens. And this is kind of a derivative of the arbitrary religious lens. But some people think that the commands of God are unreasonable. They can't be done. They'll say things like, well, we all sin thousands of times every day anyway. So why bother? Why try? We're just doomed to fail. And I think this is an overreaction to Romans 3.23. So Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Is that true? Absolutely. Romans 3.23 is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not the same as everybody sins thousands of times every day, because if we just turn the page, so literally Romans 3 right here, we just turn the page to Romans 6. Let me read Romans 6, 18 through 23. It says this, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness, 
So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So this is good stuff. We are set free from sin. We don't need to continue in sin. We don't need to keep falling and failing. So the unreasonable lens with regards to obedience to God is just not helpful. It's defeatist and it stops us from really trying to understand how it's even possible because we just think, well, it's impossible. God's unreasonable. He's got expectations that are ridiculous. I can't do it anyway. So then we just give up. Now, there's a bunch of scriptures that I can read along these lines because I think there are some people that are trapped in this unreasonable lens. They think the expectations of God, the commands of God are just unreasonable. You know, 1 John 5, 3 and 4. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So it says everyone born of God overcomes the world, which means that his commands are not burdensome. We can actually succeed. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, another favorite section of mine. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So is his yoke easy and his burden light? I don't think he was lying. Now, there are difficulties in the Christian life. There are difficulties when you're not following Christ. I mean, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. So we need to be overcomers. We need to realize that we can succeed. You know, some people even forget 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So God knows that he's given us escape paths when we are tempted to sin. Now we can pretend that it's impossible to avoid the temptation, but God knows and you know that there's a way you could have avoided that one. So God sees that. Don't create an excuse doctrine. Well, everybody sins anyway, whatever. I'm just going to go ahead and do that. That's an excuse doctrine. That's a big problem. We are called to live a righteous life. So it can't be impossible. It doesn't make sense for it to be impossible. In fact, all things are possible. Philippians 4.13, a great example. People love to quote that one. The Apostle Paul is talking about the hardships that he's been through, and yet he can be content in all circumstances. So he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We need to believe that we can succeed. Rather, how do we understand? Not from the unreasonable lens. How do we understand? Philippians 1.3-6, I think, is the way that we need to to see this. And it says this, I thank my God. Every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A good work has begun in you. 
and we can trust God to bring us to the completion of it. So we don't want to look at God as far as obedience to the principles of God, the truths of the scripture, the commands of God. We don't want to look at God as an oppressive dictator because he's not. We don't want to look at God as an an arbitrary religious lens because he's not arbitrary. We don't want to look at God through an unreasonable lens because God is not unreasonable. God is good. We have a wonderful opportunity right now to walk with God in this life and experience eternal life. God loves you. He's trying to help you. He knows everything. He can solve every problem and he's willing to grow you up and guide you through this life and bring you to everlasting life. So why not jump in on that? It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. So how do you do that? First thing, They call it the sinner's prayer. You ask for forgiveness from God and you pledge your life to follow him. So pray a prayer. Ask God for forgiveness. The price has already been paid by Christ on the cross. Ask God for forgiveness and then pledge your life to follow him because he loves you and he's trying to help you and you want to get in on what God has for you. So pledge your life to follow Christ. But then read the Bible as the map to the kingdom of God. Read the Bible and see these things like love your enemy, pray continually and try to understand what do they mean? What is the secret here? What is that going to set me free from? How is that going to help me grow into who God has called me to be? How can it help me be part of the kingdom of God? Obey because you trust and love God. He loves you. He wants to help you. He wants to give you purpose in your life so that you can help others. Trust him and obey. We're going to pray. If you've got a prayer need, I encourage you to send an email to our prayer team, prayer at goodhope.ag. They will uh, respond to your email, pray for your needs. So go ahead and do that. Uh, If you're needing to, you know, ask me some questions about this, or you need somebody to guide you, you can even email me, Pastor Mike at goodhope.ag. I'd love to hear from you, but let's pray. We'll close out the service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you that you guide us. Lord, let us not resist, kick against the goads when you guide us through the commands in your scripture, when you guide us through revealing things by your spirit, the still small voice, Lord, let us be excited to be obedient because we know that you are good. You've got a good plan. You've got plans not to harm us, but to help us get to a better place, to make a difference for other people. You love us and you want to bring us into good things. So Lord, help us to see that and understand that and yield to you. Lord, I pray for each one that's going through a faith crisis or who has ran from you because they felt like that you were angry and oppressive or any of these other things, Lord, help those individuals to see you, to love you, to understand who you are, the love you have for them and to love you back. Lord, let that happen in Jesus name. Amen.